You are listening to the Cybersecurity Defenders Podcast, a show about cybersecurity and the people that defend the internet. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. Before we get going, I just want to thank everybody for all the support we've been getting. Podcasting is a new format for us, and your feedback is essential to help guide the evolution of the show. For those tuning in for the first time, this show is put together as a series of segments. These segments will cover everything from cybersecurity news to analyzing techniques employed by adversaries. We will also be interviewing cybersecurity experts and have some fun with hacker history. On today's show, we're going to be recounting the story of Operation Flyhook, an FBI sting operation in 2000 that resulted in the arrest of two Russian hackers on American soil. It is quite a story and leaves us with some pretty heavy conclusions. So without further ado, I present to you Operation Flyhook. It would have appeared from the outside like a regular office, an uneventful day, an ordinary job interview. It was Friday, November 10th, 2000. Low 40s outside and cloudy. Typical Seattle. The setting? A simple room in a co-working space in the heart of the city. There was a lamp and on a table one of those big suitcase-looking bags for bulky old laptops. Too many coffee cups had been left around, mostly half-empty. Packages and papers, tech magazines and computer manuals open and earmarked to random pages. If you've ever worked at one of these tech startups, you get the idea. Two young people arrived at the building. Vasily Gorshkov, 24 years old, and Alexei Ivanov, just 19. They were flanked by the company representatives who picked them up at the Seattle-Tacoma airport and greeted by their two interviewers. After a brief introduction, the recruits and their interviewers broke off into the office, sat down together, and got to business. The interview didn't get off to a great start. Alexei's English was poor. His partner did most of the talking. Clearly tired from all the travel, both were visibly exhausted. When they reached to light a couple of cigarettes, one interviewer politely informed them that smoking indoors is not allowed in America. So they excused themselves for a bathroom break and did it there. Awkward as they might have been, these two young Russians were eminently qualified to work at a Seattle startup. Vasily was an enterprising business dev with broad technical knowledge. Alexei, meanwhile, was something of a wonder kid. His resume read more like an encyclopedia, featuring programming languages, SQL, C, C++, Assembler, a dozen more, System Skills, MS-DOS, Sun OS, Solaris, Windows 3.1, 95, 98, NT, and a dozen others. Networking Skills, LAN, WAN, TCP, IP, DNS, NAT, and so on. It would be quicker to list the computer protocols, languages, and systems Alexi wasn't proficient in. On those grounds, you'd understand why a cybersecurity company would be interested in them. They boasted about their skills and the projects they had in the works, including a budding e-commerce platform they hoped to get off the ground. But there was something else they weren't so quick to mention. A big, fat secret that could hardly fit inside the four walls of that room. Alexei Ivanov was one of the United States' most wanted criminal hackers. Online Information Bureau, Inc., 
or OIB, was the kind of institutional boring corporation that handled fintech before fintech turned cool. Based out of the town of Vernon, Connecticut, they managed financial services like credit card transactions and accounts payable for vendors and retailers from behind the scenes. In that capacity, they maintained large data sets with merchant financial data, consumer credit card data, and other personal information. Sensitive information with a great deal of value to the wrong kind of person. In late January and early February 2000, OIB received a series of unsolicited emails from an individual going by the name Substa, or Alexi, claimed that he'd secretly obtained root passwords for some of OIB's sensitive computer systems. With such access, he could steal any data he wished, or manipulate it, or delete it all. The company didn't have to worry, though, Substa explained. For $10,000, he'd not only exit those systems, but he'd also help repair and harden those systems against future, similar attacks. It was an offer. A deal, even. After OIB refused, on February 3rd, the hacker wrote them back, frustrated. From the error-ridden email, quote, Now imagine, please, somebody hack your network and not notify you about this. He downloaded Atomic Software with more than 300 merchants, transferred money, and after this, did rm-rf at root. I don't want this, and because this, I notify you about possible hack in you network. If you want, you can hire me, and I'm always be check security in your network. What you think about this? End quote. It was far from the first time that Alexi had pulled this stunt. The Central National Bank of Waco, Texas, NARA Bank of Korea in Los Angeles, and other small-scale financial institutions and technology companies had the same story. And it wasn't always empty threats. One e-commerce company called Speakeasy, for example, lost access to some of their IT systems, most notably their database storing customer credit card information, after refusing Substas advances for months. But at least, according to what's publicly known, temporary shutdowns were about the worst of it. Clearly, the hacker had more bark than bite. Script kitties do this all the time. They claim to be more powerful than they are, and that they've caused much more chaos than they have like a small animal standing on its hind legs to seem bigger. Except, that's not actually what's happening here. The reality was far more odd. Unlike in the United States, where companies start preparing your desk even before you finish your computer science degree, Alexei Ivanov graduated Chelyabinsk Technical State University in 1997 without any good prospects. His local economy just didn't have the jobs nor the wages to offer. And so, just as thousands of overlooked young people have done in his part of the world, the 17-year-old applied his untapped talent to cybercrime. He joined tech.net.ru, a group that systematically stole credit cards and used them to buy things online. That December, Alexei got his first real job, but not in the way you or I might. Far from applying to work at his local ISP, he hacked into their servers and downloaded the database where they stored usernames and passwords. He informed the company, and rather than, well, whatever reaction you could possibly imagine them having, they instead offered him a job. The job only paid $75 a month, hardly enough to quit cybercrime, but it planted the seed of an idea. In April 1999, Alexei began searching for work in the United States where he could actually apply his skills to make a good living. Again, he didn't go the conventional route. 
he began by downloading a database of job openings from the career website Dice.com. Then he wrote scripts that could auto-forward his resume to prospective employers in just a few hours. According to an interview with CSO Online, he applied to over 5,000 openings. He got some responses too, but in the end, no company was willing to sponsor his move to America. That was the turning point. Quote, I thought, why don't I convince people about my skills? And in order for me to convince them, I have to demonstrate them. This is how I came up with the idea of hacking into companies. End quote. The evidence is circumstantial but compelling. Alexi, or Substa, might have taken a job at any of the companies he hacked in 1999 and 2000 over the money he was threatening them over. If the most he did was temporarily shut down their IT systems, perhaps it was because he wasn't actually looking to antagonize them. And sure, it was a ridiculous plan. Maybe it worked at a small ISP in Russia, but no real company in America would hire a criminal hacker, right? Well, a year into his unorthodox job hunt, Alexei received an email from the Seattle-based cybersecurity startup Invita. Invita immediately was unlike any company he'd come across before. He hadn't hacked them, hadn't applied to work there, hadn't even heard of them before. But they were a registered corporation in America looking to hire a security analyst or consultant. Exactly what he'd been waiting for. The two sides arranged a time to get on a phone call. Alexei handed the phone to his partner with a better command of English, Vasily Gorshkov. Without identifying himself, Vasily talked to the prospective employer on his partner's behalf. Vasily suggested that rather than a conventional job interview, they should try a test hack. Alexei would attempt to hijack the company's website from Russia with no help. Rather than just explaining his skills, they figured, if he succeeded in this test, it'd prove everything Invita could possibly want to know. Invita agreed. Shortly thereafter, the test began. Alexei applied the same method of attack he'd used to compromise organizations like OIB and Speakeasy. He succeeded in only a few minutes flat. Invita asked whether he'd be willing to relocate to Seattle. By November 9th, he and his business partner Vasily were drinking on a flight headed for Seattle-Tacoma Airport. It's shocking to think, even morally abhorrent, Alexei and Vasily had been hacking into honest organizations for a year and a half with no repercussions whatsoever. Now they were about to get cushy jobs because of it? In that Seattle co-working office, beside his partner and his two interviewers, Alexei placed his hands on an Invita company keyboard for one last test. Show us your moves, they implored him. From the IEEE quote, During the course of the interview, a telnet connection was established to a computer in Russia, tech.net.ru. An FTP session was then established from tech.net.ru to freebsd.tech.net.ru, and files were retrieved from the second system to the first. An FTP session was then initiated from the Invita laptop to tech.net.ru, and several files were retrieved. The downloaded tools were used to perform a scan of the Invita network, and a connection was subsequently established to another non-Invita computer on the network. End quote. The interviewers took note as Alexei weaved his way between servers in Chelyabinsk and Seattle, gaining access and moving data at his discretion, encountering little or no resistance. They were satisfied. Alexei and Vasily, having proven their worth, still exhausted from their flight, were allowed to leave. 
the two company reps who'd driven them from the airport escorted them back to the car for a ride to their hotel. Out on the road, they got their last look at the Seattle skyline. Then a helicopter whizzed by, a black van pulled up alongside them, and everybody stopped. It was a simple room in a co-working space. There was a lamp fitted with a hidden microphone. On a table lay one of those big suitcase-looking bags for bulky old laptops with the mesh outfitted to act as a one-way mirror for a hidden camera. As it stood, the place needed more character. It had to feel lived in to avoid raising any red flags. Ray Pompon, director of F5 Labs, recalled on the Malicious Life podcast, quote, I remember turning to Special Agent Malin and going like, you know, this doesn't look like a computer office or a techie office at a startup. It looks like something the FBI would set up. So first of all, we need to get some coffee cups in here. End quote. Pompon and Malin went out for coffees to scatter in various states around the room. They looked at the packages and papers, tech magazines and computer manuals that the FBI had already laid out. Too new, too untouched. They pulled them open, crinkled them, and dog-eared some of the pages. Now, finally, it looked like the kind of tech startup you might have worked at before. Not some set design for a fake company with a name like Invita, short for Invita Hacker. When Alexei and Vasily arrived, they were flanked by the two FBI agents who'd picked them up from Seattle-Tacoma Airport. They were greeted by their two interviewers, Pompon, a security researcher who the agency hired for technical expertise, and Special Agent Malin. Meanwhile, amid the programmers, engineers, and graphic designers, the two Russians hardly could have noticed all the other FBI agents scattered throughout the co-working space that day, nor the microphones and cameras they'd hidden throughout. The interview didn't get off to a great start. There was the language gap and the travel hangover. Agents watched from monitors as the two kids took an illegal smoke break in the men's bathroom. But after some discussion of their e-commerce platform, Pompon and Malin shifted to the subject of hacking. Vasily bragged about being the boss at tech.net.ru and all the banks they'd broken into, all the credit cards they'd stolen. He bragged about getting away with all of it because the FBI couldn't arrest him in Russia. Finally, Pompon and Malin handed Alexei a laptop to demonstrate his skills on. For the last time, Alexei connected to his remote servers in Russia and began to crack the system the FBI had contracted from a company called Cytex. Outfitted with comprehensive logging and monitoring capabilities, the fake Invita website recorded every move, every keystroke Alexei placed. That digital fingerprint was fully in accordance with what they'd gathered from Alexei months earlier and from his attacks against OIB, Speakeasy, and banks around America. It was all the evidence they needed. The Russians left their fake interview in their undisclosed police vehicle. Out on the road, the second vehicle and a helicopter, both of which had been tailing them ever since they landed, finally closed in on their position. With every one of Alexei's moves logged in their system, the FBI gave the Russians a taste of their own medicine. Just as Substa had done to so many companies before, they hacked into tech.net.ru, copied all of their data, then, unlike Substa, deleted it all from the enemy servers. With the spoils from Substa's prior attacks in hand, the agency indicted Vasily and Alexei, remember, just 24 and 19 years old, on 20 charges, according to IEEE, including, quote, conspiracy, obtaining information and causing damage to computers without authorization, computer extortion, and wire fraud, end quote. 
In the end, they were sentenced to a few years in prison apiece and ordered to pay over a million dollars in restitution. The same can't be said for most of those who've followed in their footsteps since. Every year in Russia, new young men are trained in the art of computers. Like Alexei and Vasily, many of them are genuinely talented, capable of cross-operating systems, programming languages, and network infrastructure. But without an economy to support them, they often fall into one of two buckets, state intelligence or cybercrime. As long as they don't leave Russia, they can make a living in either, with no real consequences. There may only be two ways to stop this pipeline that efficiently converts otherwise promising young people into the world's most prolific cybercriminals. Either U.S. intelligence needs to pull off creative sting operations at an industrial scale, or Russia needs to change, both politically and economically, in a drastic way. Both of those outcomes seem impossible right now, so the problem will only get worse. And that is a wrap for this, the seventh episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. Operation Flyhook was written by the talented Nathaniel Nelson, narrated by me, Christopher Luft, and produced by the team at Lima Charlie. Any feedback would be greatly appreciated and can be directed to defenders at limacharlie.io. If you found value from this podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and leave a quick review or rating. It would mean so much to the team who put this podcast together. And make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you are listening from. And again, thank you very much, and we'll see you on the next episode.